Our reading today comes from 1 Kings chapter 8, 33 through 40, and Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 33 through 40. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servant, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14. And you who, <clears throat> who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made a love together with you, with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of that that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Gennard's doing good. I hear you over there. The rest of you, trust you're doing well. A um, couple quick things before we get going. Uh, wanted to uh, invite, particularly those of you uh, here in my camera friends live stream, uh, if you have not uh, been coming to the live uh, gathering uh, worship because you've just been a little bit nervous about the indoor spaces and outdoor is more your speed, we'd love to have you. Um, and I don't know if, Caroline, if you mentioned this or not, but you do have to sign up for that. So don't just everyone bring their lawn chair and show up in the parking lot. You got to sign up. You sign up through the same uh, service registration that you would find on the app there. So I uh, encourage you to do that and we'd love to see you. Uh, here, uh, either here in the sanctuary or here uh, in the parking lot, but I think it's going to be a great time. So a couple other quick things. One is we're going to be doing, I mentioned this now a couple weeks, we're going to be doing communion at the end of our service. And so for those of you that are here this morning, you got, 
you got your, uh, your communion cup on the way in, right? And I think hopefully you can figure out how that works, right? And uh, so as we get to the end of the service and we're doing communion, you know, I'll invite us to, to take of the bread. You just peel, take the bread, and then, of course, uh, the, the cup. So uh, have that ready to hand. Uh, and we'll walk through that uh, together. If you are joining us live stream, you know, we've uh, asked if you'd uh, want to join us that you would uh, also find some sort of wafers or crackers of some sort and then also some juice and I would invite you to participate in that. So if you haven't got that ready, you're watching live stream and you're like, oh yeah, communion, I, f- I forgot. You go ahead, you can skip the introduction, run and grab uh, the, the wafers and the juice and be ready to go at the end uh, of the sermon here. So we'll get into that. Also, last thing is uh, I had announced two weeks ago that we were going to move the webinar from last week to this week on how to spiritually survive the global pandemic, kind of practical steps for that. And uh, so this week at our staff meeting on Tuesday, all the staff convinced me that all the cool kids listen to podcasts more so than webinars. So they said we should do a podcast rather than a webinar on how to spiritually survive the global pandemic. So they convinced me about that. I don't really know exactly how podcasts work, but they told me uh, that if I wanted to be cool, that's what we would do. So we're going to do that, and uh, we're going to extend it out rather than just one one-hour webinar. We're going to do a series of podcast episodes on how to spiritually survive the global pandemic, and we're going to be interviewing the various staff, and I think it's going to be a lot better of a scenario. So we're not going to do that again tonight. Uh, but we're going to be working on developing this podcast, and we will be uh, extending it out over the coming weeks. So kind of stay tuned on that. Be ready for that. And then if the podcast goes well, maybe we'll just keep going with some other topics. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But I'm excited to get into that. Okay, so this morning. This morning, we are continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. We've been in the age of the kings situated between the judges and the exiles, about a 600-year period, and we've been in the age of the kings, and this morning, we return to the same scene, kind of in the age of the kings, that we were at last week, 1 Kings chapter 8, it's the dedication of the temple. For those of you who missed last week, or for those of you who joined us but were not paying attention, shame on you, let's get our bearings again here. So all of chapter 8 is the, the ribbon-cutting ceremony, as it were, for the temple. It's just been built by Solomon, and the majority of the chapter is focused on Solomon's dedicatory prayer as he inaugurates the temple. All right, so by way of introduction to our theme this morning, I want to read for us chapter 8, 27 through 30. This, wasn't our, this isn't really our text, but it, it introduces the theme of our text. So if you've got your Bible, you can read follow along with me, but 27 through 30, just listen. As Solomon begins to pray his dedicatory prayer, this is what he says. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray towards this place, 
and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And when you hear, forgive. First time I read this passage, I, that caught me off guard. I, I was expecting Solomon to say something like, and when you hear, answer us, respond to us, do something for us, you know, answer our prayer. Right? But he says, and when you hear, forgive. What exactly does Solomon mean? Forgiveness is a major theme in Solomon's prayer. We've seen that if you were listening in the reading we just had. And if we continue on reading through the remainder of it, forgiveness again is a big theme. It's a big theme throughout the Bible. So that's going to be our focus this morning is how this moment in Israel's history informs our understanding about God's forgiveness. What is forgiveness? When Solomon is asking God for forgiveness, what is he really asking for? Our sermon theme is the healing of the world, right? And I want us to think today about how God's forgiveness, properly understood, is connected to, indeed is synonymous with this healing that God is bringing into the world. So here's what we're going to do this morning. There are going to be three parts to the sermon and then we're going to take communion together. So in the first part, I'm going to walk us through 1 Kings chapter 8, which has been read for us. Look at how forgiveness functions in 1 Kings chapter 8. Then we're going to go to our second text, which was read for us, Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 14. So you can kind of put a, a, a finger in there. And we're going to look there about how God's forgiveness intersects with our lives through Christ. And then I'm going to offer some reflections both for Christians and for non-Christians, about what this all means, God's forgiveness, what this all means for us. And then for those of us who have embraced God's forgiveness, we're going to celebrate this forgiveness together as we take communion. All right? So let's get started with 1 Kings 8, 33 through 30. So last week, we reflected on this idea seen throughout this passage that God is the judge and we saw that he's a gracious and he's a compassionate judge. But even a gracious and a compassionate judge, there comes a point when God steps in and he enforces the terms of the covenant. And in 1 Kings 8, Solomon, as he's setting up the temple, he can foresee that a day is going to come when Israel will so transgress the terms of the covenant that God will step in and judgment will finally fall. And so what we've read already is Solomon looking towards that day when God's judgment has fallen, and he is appealing to God ahead of time for mercy, for God's forgiveness. So look back again here in these passages that have been read for us. Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy, now the, why would they be defeated before the enemy? They'd be defeated before the enemy, Solomon says, because they have sinned against you. Well, this is the covenantal agreements. God will protect Israel from their enemies as long as Israel prioritizes and is faithful to God and is following God. But if Israel breaks the terms of the covenant and begins to chase after other gods or worship other gods or act unfaithfully, then God will release them to punishment by their enemies. So Solomon is saying, if we break the terms of the covenant and the enemies come upon us, but then we realize the error of our ways and we turn again to you, we acknowledge your name, and we pray and plead with you in this house. Then he says, then here in heaven, 
and forgive the sins of your people and bring them again to the land. So in other words, if we sin, we break covenant, you send enemies in amongst us, they defeat us and take us away to foreign lands. But then we realize the error of our ways, we repent, we plead for forgiveness, forgive us and bring us back to the land. Or the same basic pattern is seen in verses 35 through 36. If heaven is shut up and there's no rain because we have sinned against you. Again, this is one of the covenantal curses you can read about in Deuteronomy. God lists all the things that will happen if they break covenant. And this is one of them. God will withhold the rain from the heavens. So if we sin, we break covenant with you and you withhold the rains from the heavens. But then we pray to you towards this place. We acknowledge your name and turn from our sin then hear in heaven and forgive, and skipping down, and grant rain upon the land. In other words, forgive us and grant rain upon the land. Undo this punishment. If we go down into verses, our passage from last uh, week, we looked at 37 through 40. Solomon then kind of lumps together all of the covenantal curses right? If there's famine, if there's pestilence, blight, mildew, locust, caterpillar, enemy besieges, all, these are all of the covenantal curses for Israel's disobedience to the covenant. Solomon's saying, if we do these things, but then when these punishments come upon us, we recognize our sin and we repent of our sin. Now look what he says in verse 39, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act. Forgive an act. What kind of action is Solomon looking for in the context of God's forgiveness? He's looking for God's restorative action. He wants God to undo the covenant curses. So here's the pattern. Israel breaks covenant, God punishes, Israel repents, and then God forgives and undoes the punishment. All throughout this chapter of Solomon's prayer, that's the same pattern. God forgives, and he undoes the punishment. And what I want us to see is that when Solomon is asking for God's forgiveness, he's asking for God to release the weight of God's judgment that has been put upon the Israelites because of their sin. He's asking for God to take back or to undo the covenantal punishments. All right, now, in order to kind of clarify here even more precisely the sort of nature of Solomon's request for forgiveness. Let me compare briefly two types of forgiveness. I think it's helpful to have these clear in our minds. These are very similar, but they're not quite exactly the same. There's relational forgiveness, and then there's judicial forgiveness. All right, so in relational forgiveness, relational forgiveness seeks a change of disposition in interpersonal relationships. So if I've offended someone and I'm asking for relational forgiveness, I'm asking the offended person to change their disposition towards me, to, not, to stop being angry, to, to stop holding the grudge, as it were. So typically, in relational forgiveness, we're asking for the removal of anger, from anger to non-anger. It's a change of disposition that we're looking for, because we want to reestablish normalized relationships. So this is the kind of stock-and-trade forgiveness that, that we trade in in family relationships or friendships, right? When we offend someone, it creates a relational breach in the, in 
in our interaction. Someone gets offended, someone gets angry. And then in forgiveness, when we ask for forgiveness, we're asking for that person to stop being angry. I'm sorry, I, here's the reasons, or I didn't have a reason, but would you please stop being angry with me? And so we're asking for the removal of the person's angry disposition. All right, now judicial forgiveness, though, is a little bit different. Judicial forgiveness seeks a change of action, not a change of disposition, but a change of action in legal and contractual agreements. So when we're asking for, ju for judicial forgiveness, we're asking like a court, for instance, or a judge or a king, we're asking for someone above us to relent regarding the consequences that they have placed upon us because of our misdeeds. So for instance, in debt forgiveness, right? I contractually am obligated to, I borrow money from a bank, I'm contractually obligated to pay that money back. And if I'm looking for debt forgiveness, right, I'm, I'm not looking for the bank to like be kind to me, like to have a generous disposition towards me. I'm looking for them to actually take away, to remove the debt that I'm obligated to pay back. I'm looking for a tangible action from the bank. So in judicial forgiveness, the consequence of one's sin are legal penalties. It really doesn't have, have anything to do with anger or disposition. The bank may not even be emotionally angry about the fact that I've taken their money, right? Judicial forgiveness then removes the punishment or the consequence of one's offense. Okay, now many of us, when we think about God's forgiveness, if I walked up here and I said, God forgives you, many of us kind of immediately, without quite being so precise, we move towards categories of, of relational forgiveness. We think, okay, God forgives me. That means he's not angry with me anymore. He's not holding it over me. He's not, has a grudge against me. We think about God's forgiveness as primarily a change in attitude towards us, typically from anger to non-anger. But that's not what Solomon is asking for here. Solomon is not interested primarily in relational forgiveness. He's looking for judicial forgiveness. The God with whom Israel has to do is the Lord and judge of the covenant. He's the judge. He's the one who enforces the covenantal obligations. Israel's problem, Solomon foresees in his prayer, is not God's disposition, but God's punishments. That's the problem. That's what he's being asked to have release from. Relational forgiveness isn't really going to solve the problem. The Israelites are going to need, when they get themselves on the wrong side of justice, they're going to need judicial forgiveness. So a while back, I had a number of bank accounts at the bank. I think I had three different accounts, and I was moving money from one account to another because one was going to be a savings and one was going to be a checking. And I, I thought I had moved the money from like account two to account three, let's say. And then I began to spend out of account three. Actually, though, I hadn't moved the money from account two to account three. I thought I had, but I hadn't. So I bought a cheeseburger at Wendy's for lunch for like $2.99 that cost me $40 because of the overdraft fees. So like the whole day, I was spending money out of that account for like these somewhat minor purchases, thinking that I had the money in the account, but I didn't. And I was getting hit with overdraft fees from the bank. So when I get my bank statement, I'm like, what are all these, you know, and I'm, oh, no, shoot, you know, and I realize I I messed up, and, you know, right in the bank kind of agreements, there are overdraft fees, you know, and, and I recognize that. So I called the bank, and I said, listen, I, you know, I just, I thought I had moved this money over, and then I didn't, and then, you know, is there anything you can do? I, you know, I'm, 
I promise it'll never happen again, you know. And, uh, and the lady was very nice, and she said, oh, well, I can't remove all of them, but I'll remove three of them, you know, kind of a thing. And so she took back three of the overdraft charges, right? What I was asking for when I was asking for forgiveness from the bank was her to remove the consequences. She was very nice. She wasn't angry at me. I wasn't asking her to stop being angry at me. I was asking her to undo the, the judicial consequences that had come upon me because of my mistake. So here's the main principle from 1 Kings 8 that I want us to see in this passage as we move then to Colossians. When God grants forgiveness to Israel, He's removing the judicial punishment. 1 Kings 8 is such a beautiful chapter in the Bible, this whole chapter from beginning to end, the inauguration of the temple, Solomon's prayer, all of it. I encourage you, to, I said last week, you should read the whole chapter. If you didn't, let me encourage you again, just read the chapter. It's beautiful. And it's beautiful because it offers us a picture of our own salvation. The, the whole sweep of that is a picture of our salvation, how God interacted with the nation of Israel shows us, it signifies to us how God interacts with us. So with 1 Kings 8 as the backdrop, well then let's hop over then in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 14. Okay, you guys with me so far? We're like a third of the way there, right? So just keep, keep moving along here. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Paul begins here in this passage or in our verse, he begins by acknowledging the plight of every human being. Look what he says. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses. What does this mean exactly? Paul is referring to spiritual death. To be spiritually dead, to be dead in trespasses, means to be cut off from the life of God. It means living your human life without God's divine life. The human life, if we go back to the very beginning of our sermon series, we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, particularly chapter 2, but the human life was not created to exist independently of God. We live and breathe by the life and breath of God, God's own life. So the human life cut off from God's life is really just a dead and dying life. That's the story of Adam and Eve, isn't it? Right? They, they began with God's life inside of them, but then they were cut off from God's life, cast out of the garden, and they fell into death. It was a dead and dying life. Even though they were still physically alive, they were on their way to the path of death. And this spiritual death is what then leads to trespasses or to sins, right? So we were, Paul says, we were dead in trespasses, right? Like death does something to us, right? It leads us into trespasses, cast off into death. Our souls die and then our wills desperately turn inward in futile attempts to save ourselves. And that often doesn't look very pretty. So it looks like a bunch of people clamoring over each other in a mad rush to get off of a sinking ship into the lifeboats, and the lifeboats themselves have holes in them, and everyone ends up dying. Like that is the story. Sorry to be so bleak and here on this rainy day, but that is the story of humanity. Right? that we are desperately trying to save ourselves and all the things that we run to, shoving people out of the way to get to, themselves can't save us. Right? We are trapped in spiritual death. Spiritual death is why the world is so full of violence. It's why our political and cultural landscape is so polarized and totalizing. 
It's why we don't do the things we should do and why we do the things that we shouldn't do. The story of humanity can be summarized succinctly as this. This is the story we've been telling really through our whole sermon series. God created human beings to live by his life and to extend his life to all of creation. But then we thought we knew better. We thought we knew better than God and we didn't obey him. And this resulted in death. The very thing that God warned would happen if we disobeyed him and tried to go our own way. It's the story of Adam and Eve told in the opening chapters of Genesis in a kind of primordial fashion. That's the story of every human being who has lived ever since. Now, the Bible makes clear all throughout, and especially in the New Testament, that this state of death, this state of spiritual death in which humanity finds itself is the consequence of God's judicial judgment. This connection between death and God's judgment is made explicit by Paul in verse 14. He says, they're talking about how Jesus canceled the judicial judgment, but notice that there is a judicial judgment. He talks about the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So there's this covenantal framework, this legal framework that is in place. And the death that we have been cast into is the punishment that God has rendered upon us because of our sins. The Apostle Paul later in Romans chapter 6, 23, speaks of how the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we deserve, what we get, the consequences for sin is death. Just as Israel's national sin led to, 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 uh, to plight, to, to exile, you know, to locusts. It led to all sorts of national judgments. So too, our individual sin leads to the judicial punishment of spiritual death. The Bible doesn't, now listen to this, the Bible does not merely teach us that human beings will be judged. The Bible teaches us that human beings have already been judged. The fact that you and I are born into a world in which we will die is evidence of the fact that we live, this whole world lives under the judgment of God. God's judgment doesn't just, it does hang out in the future, but it doesn't just hang out in the future. It is present now. We are now in exile. We are like Adam and Eve cast out of the garden. We are experiencing, we live in the age of God's judgment, not the consummation of that age. But we do live in this season of judgment. But here is the gospel news. Where there is judicial judgment, there is also judicial forgiveness. And indeed, that's what Paul is saying here in verse 13. So notice how Paul, just like Solomon, links together forgiveness, and restoration. Look what he says in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He links together God making us alive and having forgiven us all of our trespasses. For Paul, and really for the whole New Testament, to be forgiven by God is to be released from his judicial judgment of death, which means, it means that be, to be forgiven 
is the same thing as being made spiritually alive. Just like getting rid of darkness and turning on the light are just two different ways of referring to the same reality, in the same way, when God forgives the spiritually dead sinner, he's making the spiritually dead sinner alive. He is rolling back. He is undoing his judgment. The judgment was death. He's undoing that judgment. And now we have life again. So when the New Testament talks about God's forgiveness, it's talking about God's judicial forgiveness, about how God is rewinding the judicial punishment for sin, which is spiritual death. He's giving us new spiritual life by reintroducing us to his own divine life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, to be forgiven in Christ means to be made alive in Christ, means to be reintroduced to the life of God. Now, as an aside for all of my professional theologians and church historians, this sentence, next sentence is for you. This is why the church fathers, if you read through the church fathers, they use the terms regeneration, justification, and forgiveness interchangeably. Many of them, they just use them as all synonyms, referring to the same reality. Because to remove light and to bring light, to remove darkness and to bring light, they're just different ways of saying the same thing. Now, my point in all of this is not to say that God never gets angry. If you read through the pages of the Bible, you'll see that God gets angry uh, frequently, right? He's slow to anger, but he's not without anger. He often gets angry. But his forgiveness is only, isn't only about getting past his anger. It's about reversing or taking back the punishments. That's the thing I want you to see. Forgiveness, when God forgives, he's reversing, he is taking back his punishment, the punishment of death. So what does this mean then for you and I? So I got some comments here from my Christian brothers and sisters, and I got some comments from my non-Christian friends uh, that are listening in. So first, my Christian brothers and sisters, this perspective on God's forgiveness has the potential to open up an entirely new vista regarding God's redemptive work in our lives. When we, when we rightly emphasize forgiveness as a key aspect of the gospel, but then wrongly reduce forgiveness down to mere relational forgiveness, we inadvertently reduce God's saving activity to a change of disposition. As though the most significant thing that the gospel offers us is God's dispositional change. But that implies that the only thing or the most important thing that happens when we become a Christian is that God stops being angry about our sin. In that framework, and here's where I think this gets really important, in that framework, grace doesn't change us at all. From that framework, we're just as spiritually dead as we've always been, just as prone to sin, just as prone to anger, just as prone to lust, to envy, to idolatry, to greed, to gossip, as we were before we came to God for forgiveness. The best that we have in that framework is that God isn't angry about us anymore, about all of our sin. Reducing the gospel down to the notion of forgiveness, when we think of relational forgiveness, completely misses the most significant aspect of the gospel. The gospel isn't trust in Jesus and God will stop being angry with you. The gospel is trust in Jesus 
and he will redeem you from God's judicial judgment, namely your spiritual death. So listen, I am very glad that God through Christ loves me with the tender and gracious love of a father. I'm glad to be on good relational terms with God. But I need more than his kind thoughts. I need him to release me from the, from the judicial judgment of death that he put me under. That's what I need. And that's what you need too. My human life was made to exist in union with God's own divine life. His breath is what gives me breath. I need that life. I need that breath again. I don't need him to just not be angry at me. I need him to undo the curse that he put me under. The redemptive, restorative, life-creating forgiveness of God transforms us from the inside out. The forgiveness of the gospel isn't exclusively about God changing his disposition, but about God changing us. That's the good news of the gospel. Through his forgiveness, we are set free from the judicial judgment of spiritual death and brought back into union with the life-changing power of God's own life. So if you've just, maybe this morning, you've just kind of rolled over in your fight against sin. You've just given up, and you've contented yourself by saying, well, at least God forgives me. What kind of forgiveness are you thinking of when you say that? Let me wake you up to so much more this morning. Be reminded that God's forgiveness comes with new life. It comes with resurrection power. Be reminded that you have been set free from sin and raised up with Christ if you have been forgiven by God. Don't forget the power of God's forgiveness. Or maybe you've kind of bought into this truncated notion of God's forgiveness and you've actually gone in the opposite direction. You haven't just rolled over and given up. Maybe you're grieved by your brokenness, you're grieved uh, by your sin, but since the only thing you think you're getting from God is a change of disposition, then that means fixing all the things that need to be fixed that you've broken through your sin, that's up to you, right? Because God just isn't angry at you anymore, but you have to figure out how to fix everything. So you've got to figure out how to get rid of the judicial judgment and all of its consequences. You've got to figure out how to get yourself out of exile, survive the drought, bring yourself back from the dead, and so forth, all on your own. And, though the gospel, and you think that the gospel message is confess your sins, God will stop being angry with you, and then you try really hard to overcome the judgments of God in your own strength. And so maybe this morning you find yourself trying to live the Christian life in your own strength. You're trying to fix your problems of sin in your own strength. You've lost sight of the fact that the power to overcome sin comes from God's forgiveness, from Him rolling back the consequences of the curse. Give up trying to overcome the judgment of God in your own strength. So to my Christian brothers and sisters, the gospel offers us restorative forgiveness. It offers us an all-things-new kind of forgiveness. So be happy for your relational forgiveness from God, but set your hope fully on the power of His judicial forgiveness. And that's God's word for you this morning if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, to my non-Christian friends, let me ask you this. Do you find yourself this morning grieved by your shortcomings? Are you grieved by the consequences of your sin? Does the plight 
of spiritual death that the Bible talks about? Does that resonate with you? You're like, I, yeah, I feel that in me. I don't, maybe didn't have the words to put to it, but, but I feel that in me. And you, you would say, yes, I, I need healing. I need restoration. I'm, I'm stuck in a hole that I can't get out of, and I need help. The good news of the gospel is that your judge stands ready to help you. He is a gracious and he is a compassionate judge. Turn away from your, your sin, just like Solomon prays in 1 Kings chapter 8, that when we repent and we turn away with, from our sin with our whole hearts, turn away from your sin and your self-reliance. Call upon his mercy because he offers his mercy. He offers his restorative forgiveness freely as a gift. You don't have to earn it. Romans 6, 23, which I've already quoted, says that the wages of sin is death. What we get because of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God's free forgiveness will restore your relationship with him and begin the sure process of making you into the person that he's created you to be. Not all at once, doesn't happen in a moment, but the power of God breaks into your life and begins the process of transformation. And here's the incredible news of God's free forgiveness. And I wish I had more time to really dig down on this. But, but listen, when God forgives, he is able to reverse the curse. He can fix everything that you have ever broken in your spiritual death. He's able to wash the blood off your hands that you can't wash away. He's able to take back the things that you've said that you can't unsay. He can undo the things that you've done that you can't undo. I mean, sometimes we sin and there just is no way to put the worms back in the can. Like, it's done. It's out there. There is nothing we can do to fix it. But God can fix it. This is the good news of God's forgiveness. He doesn't just remove his anger. He steps in to restore what was broken and what was lost. Imagine being fully and finally free of all your sin. No more guilt, no more regret, no more consequences from your sins. Not just consequences on you, but the consequences that you've put on other people. God somehow in his sovereignty and his divine plan can undo all of it. No more exhaustion from trying to fix all the things that you've ruined. He can and will give you true and full and perfect freedom. Baptism is the great sacrament of the church that marks the beginning of this process. Precisely because baptism is a sign of our covenantal and judicial forgiveness. So that's why the Apostle Peter can say that baptism isn't about the removal of dirt from the body, but it's about an appeal to God for a, for a good conscience. Imagine coming to God with all the brokenness of your sin and being freed of all of it into a clean and good conscience. And it's why the Apostle Paul can talk about baptism as a sign that we will be raised up with Christ, made completely new, totally transformed, just as Christ was raised up by God into resurrection life. Baptism marks the beginning of God's work in our lives that points us forward to the day ultimately of our full and final resurrection. 
So if you're, a Christ, if you're not a Christian this morning, maybe you've been coming to Calvary for a while, maybe you've been watching on the live streams for a while, whatever the case might be, but if you are not a Christian this morning and you want the restorative justice of God in your life, you want Him to forgive you and make you new and transform you, you want to be free of all the things that you have broken and ruined, including yourself, He offers that freely in His Son. Let me encourage you to reach out and receive the free gift of salvation. We're going to be having a baptismal service, still trying to figure out the details of this, but we're going to be having a baptismal service in a number of weeks. And let me encourage you to come forward and receive, to mark the beginning of your faith in this Christian life, to receive this forgiveness, this new life of God, this restorative forgiveness that is marked by this moment of baptism. If you have questions about that, you can shoot me an email, talk to one of your friends, maybe who attends Calvary, talk to one of the other pastors. We would love to dialogue with you about that. Well, now we turn to the table. And uh, if baptism is the great sign about how the Christian life begins, then communion is the great sign about how the Christian life continues. Communion reminds us of our union, of our communion with Jesus. As Christians, in the practice of communion, we are invited to to feed on Christ as a reminder of our continual dependence upon Him. Just as the body needs food, the life of the human being needs the life of God, which is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. His life is the life that makes us new. His life is the life that rolls back the covenantal curses, the damage that comes from sin. His life is the life that redeems us. His life was the life that we lost when we fell into sin. And His life is what we get back when we cry out to God for salvation. And so every time we come to the table and we celebrate this coming together around the bread and the cup, which I could not find, the bread and the cup, right? we are being reminded of our dependence upon His life. It's what Paul means in Galatians chapter 2 when he says, it's no longer I who live. I don't live by my own life, but Christ who lives in me. This is the life that I live in now. And communion reminds us also that our forgiveness has come at a great cost. Paul says in Colossians 2 here, verses 14 and 15, if you look back at our text that we're just in, that God has released us from His judicial sentence, not by just waving it away, but by absorbing it into Himself. God defeated, God the Son defeated our judicial punishments of death by absorbing our death sentence into himself. That's what Isaiah the prophet says when he says, Surely Christ, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
He took our wounds upon himself, and his wounds have brought us our healing. This is why we partake of the broken body of Christ and why we partake of his shed blood, because he entered into our death in order to bring us to his life. So this morning, if you have received that life, if you have reached out to God for forgiveness, if he has given you his restorative forgiveness through Christ, and this table of forgiveness, where we celebrate together our participation in this forgiveness, this is for you. Right? If you're joining us as a non-Christian or you're listening in, you know, invite you to, to stay, but to, to observe and to reflect during this time about God's free offer of forgiveness and the invitation that is extended to you. But if you've already received that invitation, that I invite you to participate with us together as a congregation celebrating this forgiveness. We're communing together as a congregation and a body. We're not all together in the same room. But in truth, even on our Sundays before the pandemic, we were never always all together in the same room. Right? We're not together in the same room all the time, but we're together by the Spirit of God, united in communion with each other and in communion with Him. So I invite the worship team to come on up and ask as they play for you to reflect upon this forgiveness that God has extended to you, this redemptive, transforming forgiveness that He has extended to you. Invite upon, or reflect upon that, and then I will bring us all back together and we will partake of the elements uh, together.